This episode of the On the Water podcast is brought to you by Old Town Canoe and Kayak. Give them a follow on Instagram at Old Town Fishing, and you can check out the kayak fishing content from the Northeast and beyond. And to see their full line of fishing kayaks, visit oldtowncanoe.com slash on the water. Welcome to another episode of the On the Water podcast. I'm Kevin Blinkoff, and we've got two great guests today. Ben Gahagan and Bill Hoffman from the Division of Marine Fisheries are here to talk about the great research that Massachusetts DMF is doing. A lot of great research on striped bass that has implications for how we manage this species and how we conserve it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just get right into the podcast. I'm sure you're going to have some questions from the topics that we touch on today. If so, go ahead and leave comments on our YouTube channel or send us an email at feedback at onthewater.com. Thanks for listening. On the Water Striper Cup Tournament is back for 2023. This five-month catch-and-release tournament, beginning on May 1st, awards over $150,000 in prizes. Every week offers a chance to win by submitting photos of the striped bass you catch from May to September. When you enter, we'll send you a sign-up package loaded with great gear, and you don't even have to catch a fish to win the grand prize. A new Tidewater 2010 Adventure Center Console. Sign up today at stripercup.com. Welcome to another episode of the On the Water podcast. I'm Kevin Blinkoff, and I've got two special guests here today who came all the way down from the North Shore. Really appreciate it, guys. We've got Ben Gahagan and Bill Hoffman from Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries. And we're going to jump right into it right now. And I want to explain to our audience what the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries is and what they do for fishermen in the Commonwealth. Bill, do you want to grab that one or... Yeah, so um, Massachusetts Marine Fisheries is responsible for managing um, our, the Commonwealth's resources, the marine fisheries resources. And uh, I think that we're special and unique in that, although we do a lot of management, we're also involved in a lot of um, research. Mm -hmm. And we firmly believe that um, management should be based on sound science. And so that's what we're trying to do to contribute and promote uh, the Commonwealth's uh, marine fisheries. Definitely. DMF does a phenomenal job, in my opinion, on research, especially research that applies to to fisheries, to fishing and to recreational fisheries in particular. Um, and you are both fishery biologists with the state. So that's um, kind of your specialty. And that's really what we're going to focus on today. Um, ben, your specialty has always been diadromous fisheries biology. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin, I came to it. I, I would say that my interest is migra migration and migratory fishes. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I came from. It came to it. I started with river herring uh, in grad school. And then I've worked on striped bass and bluefin tuna and come back to working on a lot of striped bass and river herring and shad now with the division, which is great. And it's been really rewarding to be there and working on these issues that hopefully I think that everybody at DMF wants to see like Bill said, the sound science enabling people to go out and have that opportunity to fish for these species we all like to go after and pursue. Um, Bill and I both are uh, when we're not at work or and then sometimes we get to do kind of do this research at work fish. So we're pretty passionate fishers. And so we want to see great fishing. We want to see sustainable use of those resources and growing resources. So everybody has a chance to go after them. So it's been a great opportunity to work at marine fisheries. And I wholeheartedly second what Bill said about it. 
And a lot of the research that you do, um, tell me a little bit about where the funding comes for that. How do we pay for this research to get done? That's a really great question, Kevin. Um, so a lot, my actual salary uh, comes from license sales. Mm -hmm. So that comes from the Marine License Sale Fund, as does a lot of the research that Bill and I do on recreational species like striped bass. Uh, Bill's been doing some winter flounder work. And that's coming from those marine license sales. Um, it also comes from the Sportfish Restoration Grant, and that's a federal program where we get basically reimbursed by the federal government based on a formula of how many licenses we sell and how much uh, tackle sales there and other things related to fishing sales there are in the state. So that's what these are all ways that DMF, we are trying to give back to the recreational fishing community and the fishing community at large based on what they're putting into the system. It's one of these kind of like user pay funding the system to make better fishing. So we do yeah. the best we can. I think that we don't do a great job sometimes of getting the word out enough about that, but it's really, we're out there trying to improve fishing for everybody and we're using the money from these license sales. We had to do the license sales based on what the federal government said, but we're really trying to give back through research, improved opportunities. There's a lot of boating access that comes out of that fund, new ramps, new fishing piers. Yeah, there's a lot of our readers have, have asked, they asked that question, where do my saltwater fishing license, where does that money go? They can see it with the freshwater side because they see trout get stocked and things like that. And I think that there's um, there's a lack of understanding of realization that that money you're spending, um, a lot of it comes back to you. It comes back to you in access. It comes back to you in improvements to the boat ramp and to the research that we're going to talk about today. The other part of that, you mentioned the, um, the sport fish restoration, do I have that right? That comes from um, taxes on fishing gear. And so a lot of uh, fishing, every time you out and you buy fishing tackle, there's some tax on that extra money that comes out of uh, what you're paying for fishing lures, rods and reels, things like that. That money goes to the federal government, then comes back to the states and can get put into programs like you're working on. Again, just another way that um, that your money comes back to work for you. Yeah, it's a really great system. It's been, I mean, I, I think in saltwater, it gets talked about less than freshwater. And with wildlife management, it's called the North American model of wildlife management. Mm -hmm. um, it's been very successful. We really have a lot of great success stories in, in the United States and Canada about how this system can work and improve resources. So. It's cool to be part of it. And thanks to all the license holders for yeah. supporting us. And then one other piece, I think, these, uh, which I have on my car outside, the striped bass conservation license plate. Yeah. And so we, that's a specialty. So that's a specialty license plate you can buy if you're in Massachusetts, uh, striped bass conservation license plate. And that money comes back to also fund striped bass conservation and research. Yeah, that, that's written up so that it funds, um, it can support striped bass research as well as any species related to their their life cycle so some of it may end up going into forage fish and things like that or habitat restoration but it's largely all about restoring striped bass conserving striped bass um we rolled that out unfortunately it came out just as the pandemic was hitting and so i think it muted some of the response we'd love to see more people doing that um it's a great way to support the efforts we're doing uh we should have some pretty exciting news coming out. I'm going to tease it in the next few months about some other opportunities to kick in some money uh, after hours for people who like to enjoy a beverage now and then. Oh, nice. So yeah, so there might be some stuff coming down the pipeline for that and other ways to support that fund. And then uh, we're also hoping to, for people who are interested in it, we're going to, you can keep a lookout on the website. We're hopefully going to make a YouTube video that'll be on our YouTube channel, just showing how easy that process is to help people understand where the money goes, how easy it is to get it and walk them through it with the RMV. Great. So now let's get into it. Some of the research that you're doing, um, that this money is going toward. And let's start off with, with striped bass, because that's just such an important fish in the Commonwealth. <laughs> it's the one hanging above your head here. It's, um, it's what our audience really is interested in. 
So the striped bass research that you're doing, one of the major components of it is on release mortality. So this is striped bass, when you catch them and you release them, which is a huge part of the striped bass fishery, they don't all survive. And trying to figure out how many survive and how many don't, and also what factors go into deciding if they survive or not, can have a huge impact on striped bass management and conservation. Um, Bill, can you just kind of give us a background of what do we know about striped bass release mortality and what are we trying to figure out? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, really back um, in the 90s, um, we had Paul Diodati, who was later our director. He was a research biologist and he did a post-release mortality study. Um, he tagged uh, up, up to 2,000 fish and put them in a in a pond, saltwater pond, hmm. and then he had anglers go out and target them. Um, and then at the end of the season, he was able to go and drain the pond and count all the tags that were on the bottom of the pond. And so, I mean, that's quick overview how he did it, but basically they came up with a 9% post-release mortality rate estimate. So um, back at really starting in 2008, um, the Division Marine Fisheries invested heavily into acoustic telemetry. Um, and we first we started off um, with some striped bass studies and some Atlantic cod studies, but we developed our really expertise using this new technology. And when we took that, we realized that we had the opportunity to reassess this post-release mortality study that Paul Diodati did in situ, so out in the open ocean. And the fish he tagged were all fish that were caught in a fish weir in Rhode Island and trucked up. These are actually all sizes of fish. And so... Um, and, and just for everybody listening, quick explanation of what is acoustic telemetry? Okay. So, right. So basically the way acoustic telemetry works is that you have um, transmitters, which are the tags, and mm -hmm. then you have receivers, and these are passive listening devices. So how the system works is you take um, a transmitter or a tag, and you can surgically implant it in the fish, or in this case, we attached it externally, and then release the fish. Um, and with that tag, it has um, unique information, so a unique ID. So, and it's continuously pinging that information out into the ocean, into the environment. And when it swings, swims by an acoustic receiver, it's a listening device, and it will detect that, detect that transmission. And so it's really useful. So not only do you get unique ID, but you can get um, depth, you can get water temperature. And in the study that we did most recently, we're looking at tailbeat frequency. So, oh, and wow. this will tell you, um, excel, it's, essentially, it's an accelerometer essentially, um, but this has been programmed to tell you if the tail is beating or if it's not. And so obviously if the tail's not beating, then you know it's mortality mm -hmm. or the fish died. So that's the technology that we're using. And that's briefly how we how we used it. And just the really nice thing about it is that we're using it. Um, Greg Skolmel uses it for his white sharks. You guys had Dr. Nebone on, he's using it. So basically from Florida up, into the Canadian Maritimes. Everybody's on the same technology now. We're all putting receivers in coastal waters. And for a, a coastally aligned fish like a straight bass, I mean, you are going to detect it on everybody else's receivers. We're all plugged into networks. We're data sharing. So it's great. We have these, and we, in this case, designed an array, as Bill's going to talk about, to look at the immediate post-release mortality of straight bass. But we also knew if those fish left the array, if, we were, if they were alive, we were going to detect them either on our receivers elsewhere in Massachusetts or as they migrated up and down the coast. So it's, a, it's a great to have that kind of data sharing capability. And we'll get, there's a lot more to talk oh, about yeah, there. So we'll get into that there. on what that allows us to know about striped bass and just their general movements up and down the coast. Um, but sticking with the, the mortality study, 
Um, so where does that currently stand? Um, what results have you seen so far? So I guess back up just a little bit. So we're this is still work in progress, and we're going to get to what we're doing currently. But just like five-minute background is that um, back in um, 2020, um, you know, as people are became, as we saw the, the striped bass um, population starting to decline, um, Massachusetts really was proactive in implementing a circle hook regulation. Mm -hmm. And the year after that, the SMFC, also mandated, mandated circle hooks really up and down the East Coast throughout the whole stock range of fish striped bass. And that was a reaction to kind of those stock assessments leading up to Amendment 6, where it became apparent that post-release mortality using that 9% number was now constituting over half of the overall mortality on striped bass. This catch and release fishing, if you use 9%, that was more than half the mortality for striped bass. So that became this kind of big issue that maybe we could have the power to address. And I think the commission, rightfully so, you know, decided to do something proactive and go to circle hooks. But yeah. we were then charged with saying, you know, does this work or not? Right, because circle hooks, there's a long history that they um, they work in improving the release mortality. You know, fewer fish die if you're using circle hooks with a lot of other species. Uh, the way a circle hook is designed, I think most fishermen are familiar with. The point is turned inward, and so the idea is that if the hook is swallowed when you're fishing with a natural bait, it slides out of the stomach or the esophagus, which is you know not a good place to hook a fish tends to get caught in the corner of the mouth or in the lip, and therefore you have a fish that's in better condition to be released when it's hooked with a circle hook. And so the assumption, which I think is was pretty fair to make, was that with striped bass, a circle hook would, would make sense. Uh, to use a circle hook with natural bait would mean that more fish hooked on circle hooks would survive and be able to, to live another day. Yeah, exactly. And so, but you know, when we started looking at the research, there was this paucity of information um, about specific circle hooks to striped bass. There was some freshwater studies, but they really didn't apply to saltwater. And so that's the first question that we set out to answer. Um, and so we compared um, a Gamagatsu uh, 60, I believe, to a, a, a Gamagatsu J-hook. Mm -hmm. And so we went out and we tagged 150 fish with our acoustic telemetry and looked at the differences and then also started to become be able to calculate how many of those fish, once we hooked them, died. So after the first year, um, we realized that we needed more data points and we needed to test more hooks. So we ran another year of tagging. We tagged another 150 fish. Um, so we had a total of 300 fish um, with four hook types. And so at, that at the end of that, after that, we actually had really good information on those specific types of circles in that J-hook. And so we were able to develop um, a release mortality rate estimate based for those hooks. And so some of the, one of the, probably the most important things, and without going too far down that path, but what we've realized is that what was really special about this or unique about this study is that we can actually now look at a fish and based on fight time, handling time, um, and water temperature, and most importantly, hook location, we can actually predict the, the potential of that fish surviving, so the post-release mortality. So, which is great because these tags are not cheap. Receivers, it's a ton of work to maintain these. And now we can actually move forward and not have to actually tag the fish to, to predict if it died or not based on the 
information that we collect, we can actually predict the survivorship of that fish. So in other words, if I go out and catch a striped bass and it's I've hooked it in the mouth and the water temperature is 60 degrees and I managed to unhook it pretty quickly, we can have a pretty good estimate of what its chances are of survival. Or on the other hand, if I hook a fish in the gills, it's bleeding and it's a hot July day, the water is very warm, it takes me a while to get the hook out, You know, then I'd also know with a percentage there a general idea of what the chances are of surviving. And those are kind of the two extremes. And then you can also figure out in between based on where the hook is, what the temperature is, and how long the fish is out of the water. That's that's exactly right. And so now that we've done, we've tested multiple hook types and hook styles, um, we are now moving forward. And the bigger question, or the next question really for us is, what about artificials? Because we haven't tried that. There's so many different mm-hmm. um, for different types and styles of artificial fishing. Everything from a small single hook, you know, for a fly, um, all the way up to you know the dock that has trebles hanging every place, and they're huge. Right. And so we're actually now setting out to answer some of these questions, mm-hmm. and that's leading into the next thing that we're doing right now. Yeah. I think that ultimately, Bill talked about how the. You know, we started out with this question of whether or not circle hooks were going to be effective in live and dead baits. But from the start, we wanted to get to a point of can we replace that 9%, that blanket 9% and fine tailor it to the actual fishing patterns of people up and down the coast and mortality rates for different gear types. So we can get a more accurate look and our estimate of post-release mortality for all striped bass, not just Massachusetts. That's, That's our goal. And there's, you know, along with that, scientific knowledge of knowing that, then it also gives anglers some idea of uh, a better idea of what these variables are. Um, you know, time, I guess it's, it's in some ways obvious, but at the same time, when I go fishing, I never really think about, you know, what is the water temperature and how does that affect how quickly I need to keep the fish in the, get the fish back in the water, keep it in the water. Um, and then, like you mentioned with artificials, we see a lot of anglers now are really focusing on, and we've been promoting it as much as possible, removing trebles, going to single hooks. Again, common sense assumption is fewer hooks. We've all seen the treble hooks are, tend to do more damage to a fish, whether it's lethal or not. Um, it's safer for the angler. It's faster to unhook the fish and get that fish back in the water. So it would seem like that's uh, an important way to help reduce that, you know, get to a lower than 9% number and keep fish alive when you release them. Absolutely. That's the other benefit is that is hopefully it's information that, you know, we can use it as managers to figure out how to better manage the stock, but also anglers are then going to be able to hopefully take it and put it into practice to improve their handling practices, you know, on the other side. And DMF is launching now, uh, what you're calling a citizen science initiative, which is related to the mortality study, correct? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, this is, this is new for us. Um, although we've done not citizen science is certainly not new to us, but, um, this year, um, what we're trying to do is recruit as many anglers to go out and help us collect information while fishing for striped bass. And how we're going to do this is that we have, um, a kit. So if you go to our website and, um, maybe we can show them how to get there. I'll put the link in the, uh, in the description on YouTube, and we'll definitely have it available. Okay. That For those listening, it's pretty easy. It's mass.gov forward slash striper. Nice. Yeah. So it's an easy one for the listeners. Easy. A lot of times the government uh, web addresses are super long. That's a nice, easy one to remember. We, we managed to get it somehow. Thank you. Yeah. And um, so once you sign up, um, we will be sending out a kit. And in the kit will be your data sheet or a log. Um, you'll have a thermometer, and um, you are going to have... Timer. Yep. Right. The timer. Um, and then we have some, if you 
once you collect that information, um, and the th information you're going to be collecting is going to be um, what you're using for a lure. Um, we, you're going to know um, if any details on the hook size and stuff is beneficial. If you're using, if you aren't using an artificial and you're using a single hook or fishing natural bait, that's okay. We'll take that information. On the log, there's actually a place where you can place the hook um, on the log. And then once you've complete that log um, or before you change out the hook type, I guess, take a picture with your phone um, or just save the log and um, you can mail it to us. If you don't have a phone, most of us can do that. And then you can email that information um, to us. And then the information you're going to be collecting um, is the, the lure that you're using, um, the water temperature that you're going to take with your thermometer. Um, once you hook up a fish, you're going to time the fight time and then the handling time. And then where, most importantly, where, did, where was that fish hooked? Um, and the only other thing is um, your, if it's, the fish is bleeding profusely or whatever. And so those are the key data elements. And once you send that in um, to incentivize people, first uh, data sheet that you send in will send you a new pair of pliers. And then after that, um, you'll be entered into a, a weekly raffle and it'll be just a random selection. And we have a, a Shimano rod and reel um, setup that we're going to be sending out. And then uh, recently we've just been received support for Costa sunglasses. And so they're towards this fall, there may be some um, sunglasses going out for people as well. That's that's awesome. It sounds a little um, familiar. It sounds almost a little bit like our striper cup in some ways. <laughs> but, uh, but that's a, a great opportunity. Do you have a certain number of participants you're looking for, or? Yeah, right now we have um, 300 mm -hmm. kits that we're going to be ready to go. Um, last I checked last week, we had about 170 anglers signed up. Um, hopefully, after this podcast, we'll get a few more. Um, but then we're. This is going to be a two-year study. I think this is going to take a while. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like even outside of Massachusetts, if people want to help um, and contribute, then they're welcome to fish wherever up and down the East Coast. If they're from New Jersey, great. We'll take the information. And um, as long as supplies last, we'll be sending out kits. So great. start with 300 and we'll go from there. And, and talking about trying to bring it back to the angler, we also have plans to have an online application uh, where you can go during the summer. And as we get more information, we'll try and update it every week or every other week. So you can go and see the results as they've come in and play, choose different lures, see what the results are for that lure, then what the predicted mortality would be from that effort. And hopefully we're going to work in some interactivity too, so that you're like, oh, wait, well, what if the average fight time for this lure type was actually three and a half minutes versus two or if you made it like august temperatures versus july you can see how that predictive mortality would change just so people can really see the data as it comes in understand what it's saying and actually play with it and see how the the model responds because we think that's an important part of it too that's that's great i'm um, a big fan of that idea of citizen science of using the fishermen who are out there i mean you guys, obviously, you get to go out sometimes and fish for science. And uh, a lot of the fish in the mortality study you were talking about, I assume you had to actually go out and catch those fish? Yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate part of my job, I guess. Yeah, right. So now with the citizen science part, I can go out or, or anglers can go out and fish and say, like, you know what? I'm, I'm not just fishing for fun. I'm doing science. I'm helping the resource. Uh, and there are opportunities in other states as well. Um, and we'll pull some of those together. But I know that there are other states as well doing some different... Uh, mostly along the logbook line. I think New York State does that, looking for anglers to kind of participate and share some of their data of what they're catching and what they're catching it on, things like that. So we'll share some of those opportunities as well for people who, who uh, can't take part in this study, maybe. Yeah, excellent. So 
you know, leading up to this before the, we kind of had the stock, although Bill and I joked the entire time as we we're trying to tag fish for the study that we should have done it about five or 10 years earlier. So um, from 2015, 2015 and 2016, we did a lot of tagging on striped bass prior to the uh, post-release mortality work. And that was pretty interesting and really exemplifies for me a lot of what Bill and I were saying about division marine fisheries, where I had come from doing striped bass work on the Hudson. They'd finished up a really interesting project in coastal Massachusetts, looking at the three mile line, mm -hmm. um, you know, and when there's, there were those big uh, sand eel aggregations on Stellwagen in the late 2000s, and there was big bass out there and everybody was kind of upset about saying, maybe, you know, these fish aren't available to us. And Bill, if I mangle any of this, please jump in since I wasn't here for this. Um, Doing you know, so far. Yeah, Bill, um, Bill led up a study with other folks at DMF that uh, Dr. Jeff Nebone ended up coming in and help write up, um, where they were trying to figure out if those fish that were getting encountered out on outside the three mile line would then come back over the course of the season and come into Massachusetts waters. Like, were they actually available or not? And they did find that those fish were available. They'd come back and forth over the line multiple times over the course of a season. So it wasn't excluding all opportunity for those fish. Um, as part of that, they also got a lot of, as we are talking about this acoustic telemetry system and these tags at that point, those were four year tags. Five-year uh, tags? Yeah. Five-year five. tags. Yeah. You know, so they were getting these extended histories on some of these fish, and everybody else has receivers out. They're going up and down the Atlantic coast. So they were learning a lot about the migration of striped bass that spend the summer in Massachusetts. And they published on that as well. Some of the, um, they had all tagged in one spot in Massachusetts. They tagged all these fish on Stellwagen. So they kind of had one aggregation or group of fish um, that they tagged in that summer. And they kind of got a look into the patterns of that group of fish, which were really interesting. Those things did things like, Almost all the fish would come up the canal in the spring, but in the summer, they'd go down the backside. Um, I had been working specifically on Hudson River fish in about the same time period. I'd gotten returns on my fish from Bill and the other folks at DMF. They'd obviously seen them and said, oh, okay, so these are Hudson fish. It was interesting to talk about that. We have hallway conversations. Next thing you know, we have a whole study project. It was kind of also concurrent with that time period where I always, I, I actually steal an on the water photo for all my talks of the kind of warfare fishing off of Chatham and Nosset during that period right. where it was just the parking lots of people commercial bass fishing. And we, we were really wondering about these migration patterns and the composition of these schools that were getting fished so heavily, both recreationally and commercially and getting harvested. Are they all coming from one population? Are they multiple populations for folks who don't dive deep into striped bass populations? There's at this point, basically uh, the major spawning contributors are the Chesapeake Bay and all its tributaries, the Delaware River and the Hudson River with a, a, some small contribution as well from North Carolina. And, and, and Steffi, the backdrop of all of this is you've got a striped bass population that had kind of collapsed and hit and hit new lows in the 80s, right. had come back and built back, and then now we're starting to see a decline again in the 2000s. Um, and so that study you mentioned of tagging the fish on Stellwagen and showing that they'd move inshore and offshore came in at an important time because at that time, there were quite a few anglers and, and fishermen who looked at this and said, there's not really fewer striped bass out there. It's just that they're spending more time offshore. And the study said, no, they are actually coming in inshore and offshore and sort of, you know, disable that argument and let people say, okay, no, there is an issue. Striped bass are declining and um, there's no excuse for not trying to enact some conservation measures, which we then saw happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point, Kevin. It's, a, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm in my early mid forties. 
And so I, I think I'm right though at that threshold where I started straight bass fishing 89, 90. Mm -hmm. And I can remember, well, and I say straight bass fishing, I started saltwater fishing in Long Island Sound and that was blue fishing. That yeah. wasn't straight bass fishing because there weren't like, they were just kind of needles and haystacks at that point for us. And um, I think that it's amazing. The story of straight bass getting rebuilt the way it did, getting fortunate with environmental factors and, and regulations me meeting up and having a really great recovery is great. But I, th I think there's, a lot of people who came into that fishery in the 2000s, they have no idea of what that history, that just like that short history of what you just put out. They don't know that and they don't mm -hmm. understand where it can go and how quickly that can happen. So it's an interesting, I think, backdrop for some of us as we talk about this stuff that it'd be good if everybody. D definitely. And you can even, I mean, we, I won't get too far into this, but you go even further back and there are, we've got recorded through history, um, big changes in the striped bass population. And it, I don't think it's necessarily a case of saying, well, see, this is this is how striped bass work. Their population booms and crashes naturally. Um, we've been fishing for striped bass for hundreds of years. We've been uh, commercially fishing for them for hundreds of years. We've been altering their spawning habitats, making dams, polluting rivers, draining marshes. Um, that's been going on for a long time. We so can we've... have a whole second podcast. <laughs> we can do it. Yeah. But, um, but yes, focusing on more recent history, yeah. we're at a point now where striped bass have been declining from a, from a peak in the early 2000s. And, you know, that's a big focus. I think of striped bass management right now is reversing that decline. It's such an important fish. Everybody knows that it's supports a huge economy, supports, um, an important recreational fishery, lots of businesses on the water being one of them. Yeah. And yeah. So, no, I mean, just our back of the envelope calculations for Massachusetts are the striped bass fishery contributing as much as $600 million annually to the economy. So it's a, it's a really big number. Um, and it's part of why we do this. And yeah, so that was all the backdrop. We were sitting here, we we're saying, okay, we have this really intensive fishing effort that's kind of reoccurring at the same place and time every year. How does that affect these fish? What fish are being affected? And we saw acoustic telemetry is a really great way to approach that. Um, so we ended up designing a study uh, that would address it. And it's really important also outside of all the economics to recognize that every year Massachusetts is either the first or second highest amount of striped bass effort and landings on the recreational side because there's so many fish here during the summer. There's so much effort for them. Everybody comes from out of state, in state, everything. And then, you know, we also have a commercial fishery that just through the quota system is locked into the third uh, highest commercial quota. So, I mean, not only are striped bass really important in Massachusetts, this big economic and just kind of part of our culture, uh, that it's also we what we do in Massachusetts is very important for all the striped bass up and down the coast because there's so much effort here. Um, so we took that in mind. We moved forward and instead of just tagging in one area, we decided to tag and fish in three areas. So we put these receivers out. We gated off uh, Vineyard Sound and Buzzards Bay and tagged fish in there. When you say gated off, what is so that? So we take, so like as Bill was saying, these receivers are acoustic, they're passive listening devices, right? They're hydrophones with a computer in them just recording who swims by. And um, sound in water acts weird, strangely, but we basically try and create gates where we space them close enough so that we don't expect any fish to be able to swim between two receivers without being detected. So you can have this string of receivers. So we literally would go out and we'd put this string of receivers from the gooseberries over to Cuddy Hunk and then from the Cuddy Hunk over to Devil's Bridge so that any fish on, on one end and then going, oh, wow. you know, we had the canal gated off every year and then we ran one from here in Falmouth all the way across to West Chop. 
um, so that we could. So if any fish had, swims through that area, yeah, you know it exactly. And then we had all by the end of the study, we had a, pretty much every cut between the islands and the Elizabeths also gated. So so we knew all the fish would be in here. Um, for Cape Cod, we we had the canal gated off on both sides, and then Greg Skomol's white shark coverage is so extensive around both sides of the Cape now that and really any striped bass that's in that area, we're going to hear it. We also have a gate going a few miles off of uh, Cape Cod up in Provincetown. And then uh, we had we did the same thing up in outer Boston Harbor from Nahant to Hull. We gated that off, and we tagged fish inside Boston Harbor, and we tagged fish off Cape Cod. Cape yeah. Cape, and we have a gate. And to the north of everything, we have another uh, gate going yeah, what, nine, twelve nine, miles off of yeah, yeah off nine Cape miles, nine yeah. miles off out over Jeffers. Yeah, it's it's um it's fascinating because as fishermen for decades before this, we always look at striped bass and have come up with these hypotheses and theories of which fish are from where and where are they going? And, you know, are the fish in Boston Harbor, the same fish that came up through the canal? And, you know, I think it's part of the, we do a, the striper migration map where we're looking at fishing reports that are coming in from, from people who are out on the water. And, um, there's been such an audience for that. People love it because they're always thinking about that. They're always wondering when are the fish of certain sizes going to get into my waters? What happens, you know, based on when I see fish in Buzzards Bay, are they going to go through the canal and leave and go into Cape Cod Bay? Um, so it's something that we've always been looked at. Now you guys are doing the actual science and we can actually see based on these receivers when fish are going up into Chesapeake Bay, when they're going into the Hudson River, at what on what date are they swimming through the canal? Yeah, I can pass it on to you. I am laughing right now inside because I, when I give this as a presentation to anglers clubs, I have a slide. So as I said, you know, so everybody else has these receivers. And when we did this, every major spawning tributary had a bunch of receivers in it. We timed it really well. There was a huge array at the mouth of the Chesapeake. There was a huge array in the Mar Maryland and Delaware wind energy areas. And so we have all our fish and I have created a loop of these, you know, where these fish are, are being detected coastally and in all these rivers at a weekly time step. And then the size of the bubble at the receiver is how many fish were detected that week of our tagged fish. And, and, and I always, you guys have probably seen the on the water colored map they put out every spring. Get ready to see, actually see it because yeah. that's what it is. It's just a movie, a weekly time step movie of the fish going up and down the coast. And then you can see it over like two years, exactly what's happening. So it is the, the exact fish doing it. So, so what are some of the um, most exciting or some of the biggest things we've learned from these tagging studies? So this one was cool. So I think we also ran a bunch of genetics, um, doing all the sampling. We're bringing in samples from our, our our volunteer data collection team, all the volunteer anglers who send us samples, scale samples. We pulled genetics from those and then all our commercial and recreational sampling. That's the other half of this, just really briefly. The whole idea of this study is to understand if striped bass that come into Massachusetts may have a higher or lower risk of, of dying of fisheries mortality based on where they spend their summer how where they spend their winter and spawn and how they get between one place and another so like basically does the fish's migration ecology affect its chance of being a mortality or not and can we manage around that can we do some smart management decisions to reduce that mortality and increase opportunity for anglers um so the other part of that is we have all these behaviors from the tagging we're trying to figure out if those fish we tagged are from the same kind of composition of populations in each area as the, a whole big pool of fish, and we're doing that with genetics. So we have all these genetic samples as well that we got from everywhere. I don't want to leave that out for right now. Mm -hmm. um, but it was some of the really cool stuff we've learned is that uh, just like a lot of other fish and probably a lot of anglers know, striped bass have a, a lot of fidelity, not to only where they spawn, but to where they come back to every year. So fish that we had uh, a five-year history on 
over 90% of those fish went back to the same general area of Massachusetts coastline in all those years that they were tagged in. So when you say general area, is that yeah. like Boston Harbor? So we could, because we had that receiver coverage, we could span that out a little bit and we broke it into basically everything north of the canal, mm-hmm. uh, anything on either side of Cape Cod and then Buzzards Bay and Vineyard Sound. So if a fish was tagged in, in Cape Cod, more than 90% of those fish stayed there year after year after year after year. Wow. And it's the same thing for all these different areas. There was, usually if there were fish that changed where they like to go in the summer, it was Cape Cod getting and Buzzards Bay Vineyard Sound or the northern part of Massachusetts kind of sending their fish to Cape Cod. That yeah. may have changed now. I mean, it's really interesting the timing we did it in where now with the aggregations of mackerel and bunker, north of sorry i'm not from massachusetts so i call them bunker (laughs) (laughs) pogies that are north of the canal i mean that may have changed and we've seen certainly seen changes in effort and harvest in our commercial fisheries based on that but but we saw a lot of aggregation fidelity is what we're calling it so these fish were going back to where they were tagged um and that was really interesting we also saw a lot of differences or we saw some significant differences in migration routes um so fish that Unlike what we saw with the Stellwagen fish, fish that tend to come up and spend their summer north of the Cape Cod Canal, use the canal in the spring almost exclusively, and then also again in the fall almost exclusively, where those Cape Cod fish we tagged were much more like what Bill saw with the Stellwagen fish, where they were coming, a lot of them would come up through the canal, some would come around the backside in the spring, and then a lot of them went down the backside in the fall. And what that led to when I started looking at where I detected fish last in Massachusetts. So if a fish came into Massachusetts and you figured out where their last detection was, now that may be a seal, that may be a white shark, it may be something else, maybe something else happened to that fish, but let's just assume it's a mortality that's related to fishing and fishing behaviors Mm -hmm. that, um, over half of those, you know, basically 30% of the fish that would show up in Massachusetts in a given year would end up having their last detection that year. So they died in Massachusetts waters that summer. And over half of those would be fish that had spent their summer in the north and then were last detected in the Cape Cod Canal in the fall. Oh, okay. So it's like, again, that migration route and the timing of that migration matters, right? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like even though the Cape Cod Canal isn't part of that, what you may say, you can artificially say it's like this northern mass fishery is having a real impact on these fish that right. 90% of them are coming back to Northern Mass every year. You know, so you can this, see some differences. And what year was this? That, that was 2017 okay. that I worked that up for. I have to work it up for other years. Um, the the funny thing about all this acoustic data is we stopped the study in 2020, but I really, we're still getting detections. There's this whole tag lag effect is what you call it because mm-hmm. other people are getting them. Some people are good about getting data out to you quickly. Some people are not great, but at this point it's all on me. I have everything I need. And, looking forward to doing a deep dive this summer into everything but it's 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 the um the disproportionate number of fish who don't survive going through the cape cod canal is um is interesting that 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 had such a noticeable effect yeah i think realizing that was 2017 so it was before the slot limit on recreational fish yep i think that was also when you could still commercially fish for striped bass from shore yeah it was (laughs) and so i do you know i remember those days it was also a time when you know only six years ago now, but the Cape Cod Canal had much stronger, it seemed like had much stronger runs of fish through there, um, often based on the prey. So mackerel would come through, especially, you know, you'd get this fall push of mackerel through. Um, So I wonder 
now if that is quite the same. And I'm not trying to defend the canal, but I, you know, it is. <laughs> there are some folks who say the canal is like a shooting gallery for bass, and it's it's too easy to catch them there. It's anybody who's actually fished it knows that's not the case. But it's a great place for access. It's a great place that brings a lot of fishermen, gives them access to fish. Um, you know, and with a slot limit, without commercial fishing in the canal. Hopefully that's actually a problem that you've just mentioned that's already been addressed through regulations. Yeah, hopefully it is. It's good to know the, I mean, I think that in making plans moving forward, it's also always good to have an idea. I would assume that while maybe the mortality has gone down, that the behavior of those fish, it makes sense that they do that, right? It's a shortcut mm -hmm. for them. They don't need to go all the way around Cape Cod. If that's the way they're gonna go, then that's the way they're gonna go. And I mean, we talked about general area, Fidelity. I mean, these fish, some of these fish are amazing. They will be on the same rock pile yeah. within days every single year. I'm doing the tagging study. I, you see it in the data, but I, a great example of this is during the tagging study. So we did two years of tagging in Salem Sound for this post-release mortality study. And then last year we did a tag retention study in the same saltwater pool that Paul Diodati used on his uh, original study. And we were going out and catching fish to put into the pond. And I caught a fish. It was a fish uh, that had been tagged by us in the, one of the previous two years. The tag was still just hanging on by a thread. We designed them to hopefully come off for the, the wires that we used to rust out and lose the tag. But this fish was still just hanging on by one wire, the tag. We're like, oh, all right, sorry, buddy. You're getting a new tag. You're going in this pond. <laughs> we kept the tag. Um, and we got back to the office and Bill looked it up. And he's like, so you caught that bass two years ago in the exact same place, but five days earlier. Wow. And, and that's and it's something I've heard from anglers before. And, you know, they've said, uh, yeah. especially down the Elizabeth Islands or someplace like that, oh, this one particular cove, I've two years in a row, I caught this one-eyed bass or a fish with a weird fin mark. Um, we have right in Woods Hole, there's Eel Pond where yeah. they feed the bass squid that come back every year. And it's the same fish return within days to Eel Pond and Woods Hole to be hand-fed squid, which makes sense. I mean, they've got enough of a memory to know that this is a good place to go and living's easy. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, it's striped bass, definitely a fascinating fish. It's like the more you learn, the more you realize also there's there's more to it than you realized. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have to do the rest of this acoustic telemetry analysis. And then uh, I'm really excited after years, I've finally gotten the my first big batch of these genetics of 2,000 of the 5,000 samples uh, that we're running came back in and that was showing that, uh, about three quarters of the fish were Chesapeake origin, Chesapeake or Delaware. Genetically, we can't tell the difference between the two. That's mm -hmm. a really interesting story too. And then a, a quarter Hudson. Um, so I'm also doing the analysis on our tag bass to make sure that that matches up closely. And then hopefully the idea is the final step is that we'll take those two pieces of information and come up with that model that I was talking about, which we're trying to model mortality based on fish behavior origin and timing so, and then fisheries effort. So do we know, and this is a question we get a lot, the fish that we're catching in Massachusetts, are these mostly fish from Chesapeake or from the Hudson? I, I think that the Chesapeake at this point in time is still you know, the dominant producer, especially mm -hmm. when there's good year classes there. Um, it, it's got by far the most habitat out of any of these places. Um, the, the whole Delaware thing is interesting where um, for people who don't know, there's a, a hand dug you know, or a man-made canal just like the Cape Cod Canal at the top of the Chesapeake Bay that connects the Chesapeake Bay and Delaware Bay, and really Delaware River. And, and it's honestly, it's hilarious. The Chesapeake side is miles from the main spawning area 
for striped bass in the Chesapeake at the head of the bay, and it dumps out in the Delaware a couple miles south of the main spawning area in the Delaware River. So it really huh. just created this population connectivity. We lost due to various reasons a bunch of the uh, most of the Delaware population in the 70s and 80s, and as it's come back, it does. We've seen it with the telemeter fish going back and forth through that canal, um, and now with the genetics, that it really seems like those are now from the genetic basis like the same you can't pull them apart wow the so same it's most likely fish. chesapeake fish that kind of repopulated the delaware river they certainly seem to have played a part in it that's what every all the data is pointing to um, yeah so but yeah so in most years i think you know there's been a lot of different ways of estimating contribution to this kind of coast what's called the coastal stock um of striped bass is how we manage fish and that's another part of this research i could touch on really briefly you know so right now we have all these different populations but we're managing them as a one coastal stock because we haven't had a way to separate them out um, and another goal of this project is to provide a way for managers to do that so this whole genetic development and I, i'm using it for a specific part of my research but what i'm also going to do with it is do a bunch of simulation work based on the five thousand samples i have to figure out a sampling plan for every state in in, in the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, how many fish they'd have to sample and in what period based on all the data I have so that we can have a coastwide sampling of that coastal stock and actually figure out our harvest by population rather than kind of trying to manage everything as one big lump, which is a way better thing. Anybody will tell you that if you have a bunch of different populations, you want to manage by population, not just lump them together. Right. The That's more, how bad things happen. The more we know, the more we can make sure that, um, yeah, that we're taking care of all the striped bass populations and spawning grounds. And, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, you mentioned that the Chesapeake still makes up the majority. It's such a large area with different spawning rivers. It's one of the reasons that we're always looking to, um, in the fall when the count comes out and they tell us how successful was the spawn this past spring. It's so important that the Chesapeake has a good overall successful spawn for striped bass. And that's that's a study where they look at um, basically how many striped bass were, you know, hatched or, or born in the spring and that have survived and are still alive in the fall have been netted. And so it gives us this idea of when is there a strong year class, a lot of striped bass born in the Chesapeake. It's something that we then see as those fish get bigger, leave the Chesapeake, migrate up the coast, it, it affects the fishery up here. Yeah, it's a long running SANE survey and it's the main indicator for what we have. Um, and again, going, talking about the overall trends of striped bass, if you go back to the early 2000s, that's when we stopped having consistent, decent year classes. And in the past 20 years, it's it's been a lot of poor year classes out of the Chesapeake. Um, and unfortunately, there's been four very low recruitment mm -hmm. events the past four years um they do striped bass uh the, all the research points to them being more successful in cold and wet years that's not really what we've had for springs it's not shaping up that way Certainly this spring not. so i think you know for striped bass anglers who are conservation minded and are thinking about the future of striped bass is to be aware of that is that right now we have four successive year classes that are not going to be throwing a ton of fish mm -hmm. into Massachusetts waters or coastal waters and um, it's something to plan on and in a way and, and you know kind of think about maybe something to think about when you're deciding whether to harvest a fish or not that is spawning right now because the, the whole idea of striped bass is it's a fish that can live 20 or 30 years and that's how they are successful is because there are going to be you talked about these cycles of striped bass there's these climatic cycles that work for striped bass and don't work for striped bass and when you're 30 years old you're saying, all right, if I can be 30 and I can reproduce 20 times or 15 years, you know, 22 times, 23 times, I'm going to hit on more years than I miss, hopefully. And that's how you have this strong, consistent, strong numbers of fish coastally. So when you have a bunch of bad years and you're kind of cutting out that reproductive potential at the top to maximize when you have a good year. 
Yeah, it and makes also, it hard. Yeah, and, and you said harvest. Think about when you're going to harvest a fish, if you should harvest it or if you want to harvest it or not. But also a lot of the work that we're doing now um, is going to fuel the information out to the public about proper handling techniques. And On the Water has been excellent about preaching that. But this is really important because this is one of the things that as an angler you can do is handle that fish properly you know make sure that um you know you don't pick it up out of the water or if you do for a quick picture get it back in as quick as possible um if you need if you if it's a deep hooked fish you know assess if you're able to easily get in and free that that hook if you're using single hooks with natural bait for example and if you can't then you know cut the line and just let it go Mm-hmm. And uh, get that thing back in the water and, and minimize the stress that you induce on that fish because it will make a difference. And it's it's an easy thing that you can do. And it's important. I think it is important people harvest fish. I want to be clear about that. I'm not saying don't harvest straight bass. If you want to harvest straight bass for the dinner table, that's what the regulations are for. And yeah, but yeah. make good use of the fish. Yeah, absolutely. Agree. Yeah. And think about um, we I had a conversation with an angler the other day who was a Connecticut River focused angler. And he was saying that usually the, the river gets warm enough in the summertime that the striped bass, especially larger ones, tend to leave the river. Um, and then they go fish outside and, and catch them out there. And he said this past season, most likely because of all the menhaden and bunker in the river, big striped bass stayed in the river, even though the river was warm, I think, beyond where striped bass are necessarily comfortable. Something in their striped bass brains waited out and said, you know what, I'll be a little hot if I can eat this bunker. Um, but he was saying that they you know, made the decision among themselves, he and his, his angler buddies, not to fish for them because the water was so warm. Catching and releasing these fish seemed stressful and they weren't necessarily going to survive. Um, and those are the kind of decisions that anglers might have to make, um, especially with with bait changing, with climate changing, with weather patterns changing. You know, and maybe it comes down to saying, I'm not going to do catch and release fishing for striped bass if the water is very warm because the the chance of survival is less. So you mentioned that, you know, having successful spawns in certain years kind of make up for the bad years in the same way the striped bass population being spread out along the coast in spawning in different rivers. Um, I can imagine there's times where, say, the Hudson is more conducive to spawning in one year than some of the Chesapeake um, rivers. Now, striped bass in history used to spawn in more places. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And so by being narrowed down to fewer spawning grounds, I guess that, you know, their odds of a successful spawn in, in off years might be less. Is there any thought of, you know, with, with climate change, um, of trying to get striped bass spawning in new places or in places where they used to spawn? Yeah. As, as some of these, um, I think it's something that people are starting to talk about. I think we're really at the beginning of having those discussions, but places like the Kennebec, um, have been rebooted as dams have come out and, you know, mm-hmm. and it seems like the spawning habitats there, even before the dams came out, they were, they used Hudson fish to, uh, repopulate the Kennebec, the, uh, St. Lawrence. The Canadian government DFO uh, has been aggressive about trying to get that population back online, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is really important. I think, you know, over the long run um, with climate change, the St. Lawrence to me is the only thing with the habitat to replace Chesapeake Bay. So, I mean, it could be in a hundred years, our, you know, great, great grandchildren are fit winter fishing for striped bass. And there are a lot of, you know, St. Lawrence fish down here in the winter. Yeah. And, We've lost a lot of Do we know if uh, does the St. Lawrence population, do we know if those fish ever come south to our waters? There's so, yeah, I mean, that's a there's man. And the entire time you, <laughs> you have been running that array, there's been one Canadian 
yeah. tagged bass yeah. that we've detected down in Massachusetts. Um, there does seem to be a little bit of interchange there. Um, and when we, as part of these genetic studies, we first had to do what's called a baseline. So uh, it's basically like that encyclopedia of genetic signatures that you're looking at when you're trying to figure out when these fish are caught in Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, wherever, how do you match them up to their genetic fingerprint? And we did find some evidence of the United States runs in some of the Canadian populations. We didn't see much Canadian, what would be called introgression into US populations, but especially um, the St. John River in New Brunswick is one that has been massively altered. And again, this is one of those systems where they put in a head of tide dam and it more or less, they thought effectively killed off all the straight bass in the river. Uh, it's still a little bit up for grabs as to whether there is a remaining population, but what it looks like, there's been a spate of work in the last 10 years on that river then I've been somewhat involved with just through the genetic stuff that uh there is still a, a signature of those fish they just only like they're really playing environmentally lottery because of the dam now and it's like right. once every eight years they get a good like enough fish that, so that there's like a handful you know i say a handful like population wise there's a, maybe a few thousand fish running around and then they and then they are seeing some introgression of fish coming in from maine or New York and spawning in there as well. Um, and we did show two Chesapeake fish, two fish in the basin that really looked like Chesapeake fish up uh, in the Broad Ore, Miramiche area. Wow. So, yeah. But I mean, and it's that, a climate change story. I, mean, I don't know if you guys have run any stories on it. In the last couple of summers, fish have been going up into Labrador. And I mean, those are Canadian fish, but I mean, now they're being seen they're in places north. They, they've never yeah. been seen before. Salmon yeah, in, guys aren't happy, but. In general, it seems like that Canadian fishery has really in, increased the number of striped bass being caught and being targeted now by anglers up there. We're seeing more people following our striper migration map and saying, well, what's going on up in Canada? And okay, that's out of our jurisdiction yeah. right now. <laughs> we don't know, but uh, but yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. And, and there are striped bass south of us too. I mean, they're not really part of the population, but even down in Florida, there are populations of striped bass, which obviously have some different adaptations to be able to survive um, or some genetic differences that they're able to survive in that warm water yeah. down in Florida. Who knows if you see them start to to spread north, if that's even a possibility. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I mean, there's landlocked striped bass. They're, they're very flexible. The diadromous fish in general are very, very flexible. Um, they have their, their rubber bands, they'll break, but they do seem very successful. I love, I mean, it's just amazing to see how all the crazy places across the country that we've put striped bass. Yeah. You can tell that striped bass nest. are our beloved fish because, um, you know, not necessarily a good thing, but we put them in waters across the country. Yeah. Um, there's a big striped bass population out in California. I know that people fish for, we hear from a lot of people, people asking us, can we enter California fish into the striper cup? You know, <laughs> so, well, we'll, we'll see. We'll talk about that. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah, no, I mean, and then going back to your question about what we see in Massachusetts, I think there is a difference. I think that more of the small fish we see, the real small fish in the schoolies are predominantly Hudson fish. So like we get, the, I'm trying to think like 2012, 2014, mm -hmm. 2018, we had these influxes of smaller fish. It seemed like a lot of people were just catching lots of small straight bass. Um, those, we've done some genetic work on those. And you can see from other conventional tagging studies that those are predominantly Hudson fish. It seems like maybe it's just a estuary size thing. Um, that that fish come out of the Hudson at smaller sizes. They're also closer, mm -hmm. you know, than the Chesapeake is to here. There's a lot swimming all the way up here from the Chesapeake and going back down, back and forth. That's a huge energetic requirement. And not only do you have more energy when you're bigger, but you're more efficient, you know, right. like each tail beat you're going farther. So it's a lot more work and a lot less energy stored up for a small fish. 
So I do think that the, when we have these big influxes of 12 to 14 inch fish, those are predominantly Hudson River fish. Mm -hmm. and they yeah, we see them even smaller sometimes, those eight, 10 inch fish sometimes. Uh, and, I, and that's when you get the questions, can a fish this small really leave a spawning ground? And I guess, you know, I, it's going with what you're saying here, probably can't leave the Chesapeake and get all the way up to Buzzards Bay or Cape Cod, but there's a chance that a fish that small is leaving the Hudson River. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I kind of refuse to say never with fish at this point with right. some of the stuff we've seen now that we put tag all these different tags in them and otolith microchemistry some weird stuff so you never know yeah but yeah i think by and large yeah and the, when i was growing up on the connecticut river i mean we'd see fish four three four inches in the connecticut yeah and it's always like all right so are these fish spawning here or are these hudson bleedovers? what's happening here so I think part of it is this anglers. We all want to see striped bass spawning in more places. You'd love to see it. I would love to. Yeah. Um, jumping over to another fish species that's um, also anadromous and very important to striped bass, big food source, and that a lot of our, you know, a lot of our, our readers and listeners remember the days when you could go out and catch river herring to use as bait um, throughout Massachusetts. It's something you can still do in certain places in the Hudson River, but um, for the most part. Um, river herring you can no longer catch recreationally and then use as striped bass bait but they're still a very important part of the food web and of the ecosystem um, massachusetts has done a lot of work some of it with saltwater license money on trying to get river herring back um, alewives and blueback herring which make up river herring where do we stand right now in the commonwealth and in new england in general what are river herring populations like and what are we doing to bring them back? Yeah, we've done a, a lot of work. As you said, a lot of license money. I'm, I said at the beginning, I'm paid through the license money. That's because I'm a diadromous fish biologist. And that's one of the things that got identified at the beginning that uh, that money would pay for. So most of my time right now is taken up with river herring, shad, smelt, um, eels. And a lot of those fish are not doing great. Uh, for river herring specifically, in New England, it really is kind of a tale of two cities type thing where north of Cape Cod and south of Cape Cod, at least for the last five or eight years, have really seemed out of sync. Um, and I'd say by and large, there's, some, there's been some good success stories coming since the closure in the mid 2000s. Um, there's been some really successful restoration actions as far as dam removals, fishway building that have like the Mystic, where we built a fishway with DCR in 2012. And that run went from having no passage at Upper Mystic, Lake, Mystic Lakes Dam to now they count 500 to 700,000 fish a year passing Mystic Lakes Dam up in Medford. And we're about to get a fishway in Horn Pond that'll probably bump that up and maybe we'll be seeing close to a million fish year and there's been some other places where we fixed up fishways and got you know uh there was a couple years ago we think that the herring river in harwich topped a million fish then a mask it's been up and down um with some really good stewardship on the south shore on the back river and that's annually three to four hundred thousand fish maybe 250. um so there's these bright spots but there's also a lot of small runs and those like 10 to thirty thousand fish runs that are not doing well and that's especially true kind of uh, Cape Cod and South through Buzzards Bay here near where we are now. Um, Rhode Island and Connecticut have been really tough the last few years so far. They're, they're a little bit further. I'm thinking from my North Shore brain because I'm based in Gloucester. And they're just a few weeks ahead of us. And so far this year, it looks like another very poor year. Last year was exceptionally poor. So there's a lot of us who are trying to understand what's happening there. So I, for me, um, it's another one of these things where we're trying, where there's a lot of things that have happened. Um, it's good to see more fish in the rivers. I love this time of year. Um, I actually put out a newsletter 
to biologists and NGO people and stewards, river stewardship groups every week. Um, and, you know, I'm getting this time of year, I'm getting pictures of herons and ospreys and all these other things with river herring. I'm driving around everywhere. I'm seeing cormorants. I'm like, all right, the fish are here. I, so like, I very much get to, I take it for granted sometimes. I, I viscerally get to see what these fish mean for everything around us. And it's fun talking to all the straight bass anglers right now. They're like, oh, when should I come out? I'm like, well, I think the bluebacks are going to show up here. And they, everybody thinks about the river herring. But if you really, if you get into river herring science, and you really want to know, you want to figure out when the blueback herring show up because the striped bass are really on those fish. They're coming in with the bluebacks. You get this big pulse of bluebacks, which come in later than alewife. They're arriving at the same time that beginning of that alewife migration starts to drop out post-spawn. So you have this really big influx of food and i think that's what this you know we say mother's day bass i think yeah. it's the same lineup with this blueback alewife dropping out that's what they're after um, people get really excited about the alewife but i think it's really the blueback they should be paying attention to but i, I always hear that massachusetts in massachusetts mother's day is like you that's when you should really if you're not striper fishing by mother's day you're doing something wrong and yeah I just wonder if you know, how mothers feel about that. If it's just uh, <laughs> just an excuse to get out and fish, then yeah, yeah, no. But so yeah, I think river herring. Hopefully, I, I hope for more from them. Um, there's we need more data on their age structure. Massachusetts has done a nice job of getting a lot of age data. There's a few other states that are, but there's a lot of lack of that data too. Because it's interesting, we see just in Massachusetts that um, we do actually have strong year classes. So like fish all born in the same year. But if you don't age fish, you might not know it because they seem to recruit back to those rivers at different ages sometimes. So it looks like a years are like runs might be like a year or two off in their peaks, but in reality, it is the same fish but some are coming back as three-year-olds and you say like they all come back or most of them come back as three-year-olds in the monument. But for some reason over, you know, say in the Essex river where I am, they come back as five-year-olds. Interesting. And, and you wouldn't be like, you'd be like, ah, oh, monument had a good year this year, but this run was bad, but it's really, no, it's just about when those fish are coming back into your bank account. So that's the type of stuff we need to understand. But I'd say by and large, we have a lot of work left to do for these fish. And I, I think they are a super important part of, um, of our ecosystem and it'd be there's a lot of research out there saying they could be doing a lot more mm -hmm. so it'd be great to see a real restoration of those fish i i would argue that we haven't really had a meaningful biomass of them since the 70s when we had before the eez when we had a lot of international fishing in our coastal waters that mm -hmm. were using those fish so would love to see it come back like you mentioned so important ecologically and also in a kind of a you know spiritual meaningful way this is such an important fish it's such a sign of spring to see before the ocean really seems to come alive. You watch the tidal creeks and rivers come alive. Um, we see the ospreys show up. We're seeing bald eagles now show up to yep. feed on feed on the herring, the first arrivals. Um, everything just kind of comes to life. Even for striped bass fishermen, it's just such a sign of, okay, well, now that this has happened, the striped bass are coming next. Yep. So it would be great to see them, them make a bigger comeback. What about American shad? Now, there's a fish that recreational fishermen can actually target. Um, are we seeing any improvement in American shad fisheries? Um, it seems like they're fairly stable. There's a lot less American shad than river herring just because there's fewer rivers. Um, at DMF, we've been trying to restore some of the rivers. We've done some work on the Charles, uh, and we're hoping to work with DCR on improving habitat access on that river and have a, more, a larger population. But it does seem there's a, like there's a, you know, fairly small, if I had to just it's like completely scientific guess is probably like 500 to 2000 fish a year coming into there. Um, we have some small scale fisheries on the South shore and some of the larger rivers there. Mm -hmm. um, and we've just partnered with the U S fish and wildlife service to begin trying to get the fish back into the Taunton river. 
system. So we're going to be doing some stocking and assessing of that. So not just habitat work, but also some stocking. Yeah, we're doing a little bit of stocking. Um, there's some pretty good science to show that you don't want to do it indefinitely. It's not, you don't want to, you can, if you want to have a pit and take fishery, but most of the times if you do five years, if the habitat is there and everything lines up, they should kind of take hold. So we're going to try that and move forward with that. And the, the river theoretically should be able to hold chat. So it'd be great to have them back there. Um, the Pocketuck in Rhode Island, they're doing work there too, to, to improve fish passage. So I think it's another one of those species that hopefully um, so much of the effort has, and the mind focus with, with potential endangered species listings has been on river herring, river herring, but as that has gained steam, the dam remo move, removal kind of movement in Massachusetts is huge as we have more than any other state. So as that's gained steam, the shad should be one of those boats that kind of comes up with the tide, hopefully. Nice. That's, yeah. I think I'm going to, you know, that's a, a great place to end it. It's another example of what saltwater license money goes toward, toward yeah. that type of habitat restoration, which um, can have effects just beyond one species to, to restore habitat for river herring can end up having benefits for, um, for eels, for, for American shad, for smelt, I would assume. One would hope. I would hope. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually for, you know, uh, it's, it's a food source for striped bass, for birds, for everything else. Um, so I really want to thank you guys for coming all the way down from the North Shore today, fighting Boston traffic to join us here. <laughs> and um, really appreciate the work you do uh, for our state fisheries. All thank right. you, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having us down. Yeah, this was really fun. appreciate it.